Well, I'm sure our speaker this morning needs no introduction from many of you. He's a familiar face and name. But for the benefit of any new members or visitors with us this morning, Andrew Batcher has been a member here at the Washington Ethical Society along with his wife, Dana Pope, for the past, I think we settled on five years, five years. He has also been an activist for the past 15 years. He worked as an anti-war organizer in Ohio at the start of the Second Iraq War. As part of the Occupy movement, he started the D.C. Learning Collective and the D.C. Free School in conjunction with the Peace House D.C. He has been involved in the Black Lives Matter movement and has led workshops on anti-oppression, white privilege, and often facilitates the white caucuses for the local UU racial justice summits. He has worked for Nonviolence International and currently works at Cedar Lane Unitarian Universalist Church as their social justice coordinator. Here at the Washington Ethical Society, Andrew is a member of the Adult Education Council. He helped craft West's gun violence resolution, and he has facilitated numerous workshops and meetings related to social justice, relationship skills, and spiritual practice. So please welcome our own Andrew Batcher. I want to start by saying it's so delightful to be here, and I really want to thank Tony, and I want to thank Lilo for the beautiful, beautiful music. Um, And thank you all for the opportunity to speak here with you today. I see many beautiful faces in the audience, which I'm very excited to see, Um, and share what social justice is to me, which is a very important part of my life, Um, and it's a core value for Wes. But we oftentimes don't spend a lot of time discussing just what exactly social justice is. Where does the word come from? Uh, Where are we trying to head with it? What is this social justice thing about anyways? So there are a lot of schools of thought which feed into social justice. It's really way too much to go into in 25 minutes. Uh, So I've decided to focus on, there are a few misconceptions and missing pieces oftentimes in how we talk about social justice, and I've decided to focus on a few exciting and riveting analytical tools that can help us do social justice work. Um, And it's the, the analytical tools are really what I think is most missing oftentimes. I'll also be saying some controversial things, and I say this because Uh, There are important perspectives which often are not talked about because of controversy. Um, But before I go into further into it, I want to just give a broad strokes description of what social justice is and isn't. Social justice is a response to the painful, painful dissonance between the world as it should be and the world as it is. Pain like what I imagine you were thinking of during the meditation. And the shooting last month in the Pulse nightclub in Orlando is a terrible example of this. The world should be a place where no matter who you are, you are welcome. In the world as it is, people are killed because of hatred and ignorance. This pain is of a wrong that is so unacceptable, it calls us to act for change. The nature of the wrongness is social, which means it repeats across society 
It's not just isolated to one place. And the nature of the action is also social, meaning that many people from different walks of life are standing, working in solidarity with each other. A lot of times people equate social justice with charity. They're not the same. Um, well, charity means feeding the hungry. Social justice means discovering and then dismantling root causes of hunger. It's not that charity can't be part of social justice. While we're working to end hunger in the world, people still need to eat here today, right? But wouldn't it be best if everyone was simply promised and then given all the tools that they needed to thrive throughout their life? Feeding people might serve a need today, but it's not enough to change the world. And while charity stops at direct service, social justice calls for advocacy, protest, study, direct action, and more. The difference between charity and social justice could also be seen as like the difference between treating a symptom versus treating an illness. Now, I'm going to be talking about different, again, exciting, riveting, analytical tools for social justice Particularly important to me is structural analysis, which is about looking at the structure of an institution and how an injustice exists within that institution and then trying to find ways that we might intervene. Sounds very complicated, but um, I'm going to begin with an example from my own life, which hopefully makes this seem more accessible and also like something that we do regularly. So in my own story, uh, in elementary school, I sat next to this boy, Al, and Al used to stab me with pencils. This was painful. I dreaded it. And Al said that he was doing this because he wanted to make me into a man. I found this very odd. Um, I didn't know why he wanted to stab me with pencils or how that was supposed to transform me into manliness. So I told my parents about Al because I was confused, actually, was the main reason I did. And my mom said... There's no way that this kid came up with this on his own. So she called the school. Al's seat was moved. And the school confirmed that Al's father was abusive. He learned to abuse from his father, which I saw as a terrible wrongness, something which needed to be changed. No one should be hurt by a loved one, and we shouldn't learn to hurt each other. Around the same time, I had another bully, Marcus, He would push me, and he said mean things. I later learned that in Marcus's mind, we were actually friends, but he had a very strange idea of what friends were, perhaps because Marcus was also friends with Al. I once saw Marcus and Al on the playground. Marcus, he was smiling and laughing, and he said about Al, he taught me to be a man. He He used to stab me with pencils. And Al, he, had, he was beaming with pride. Me, I saw boys learning violence, the elementary school version. The father hurt the child. The child hurt his peers. When I thought about all the people hurting each other out there in the world and this spreading, I imagined this cloud of disease that infected everything it touched, which was a terrible, terrible wrongness. We only represented a small microcosm there in elementary school. The real question that I had was, where did it come from? What was the origin? Where did the father learn to hurt, to abuse? Then a few years later, when I was around 12, I heard so many kids start to express self-doubt and self-hatred all around me. 
Kids saying things like, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not athletic enough. I'm not skilled enough. I can't do it. And the hardest part for me was that I believed in people. I cared for them. But no matter how much I tried, I could not convince them that who they were already was good. My voice felt very small and powerless. Being powerless was unacceptable to me. To gain power, I needed knowledge. I needed to understand why there was so much pain in my peers. I knew they weren't all being abused by their parents in the same way that Al was. The source of this mass anxiety was not an individual injustice that I could point to and say, oh, that's it. It was something much more complex, something in the general environment, a social injustice. So I analyzed my environment. I did structural analysis to figure out what that might be. And what I realized was this. Children's self-loathing makes sense. From the moment that we go to school, our elders begin to measure how worthy we are. This usually is not done in a mean-spirited way. They're simply doing their jobs. But good intentions don't change the impact, don't change how it affects the kids. Ultimately, children get the message that we have to compete. And the consequences of not measuring up are traumatizing and marginalizing. Our performance in school is supposed to reflect our performance in life. Those who excel in school are supposed to excel in life. Those who struggle in school are supposed to struggle in life. And that is a tremendous amount of pressure for a child to deal with. And it's normal. Children see how expendable life can be with every war we fight and every person that goes hungry on the street. I should also mention that I went to public school where there were a lot of working class families who would struggle with things like providing three meals a day, uh, paying for medical care, or being treated with basic respect. Children learn their parents' struggles. They also learn their parents' prejudices. Just think about in your own life. How many influential elders have you known, maybe great people, but who weren't in some way Racist, sexist, heterosexist, ableist, xenophobic, etc. When I came to see that violence was not just about hurting individual people here and there, but the thorough and systematic devaluing of large groups of humanity, I came to see the most terrible wrongness that I could imagine. And this answered for me the question of where Al ultimately learned to stab me with pencils. He learned from his father. Maybe his father learned from his father before him. But ultimately, the lesson must come from a social environment which dehumanizes and devalues us, devalues who we are. And we deserve better. I didn't have power to change the situation, though the power for change did exist in students, parents, and teachers collectively. But I wasn't an organizer who could perhaps uh, learn, who could perhaps cultivate some of that potential. Still, from this analysis, I learned very powerful lessons which stick to me, stick with me to this day. One was that we have to question institutions, especially those that we are not voluntarily enrolled in. We have to be responsible for our own learning. I have to be responsible for my own learning. 
When someone makes me doubt my internal worth, I came to view that as a hostile act. But I also made a distinction between the person and the act. There are very, very loving people who commit many hostile acts. Along with this, we all deserve forgiveness. The good that is within us is not suddenly erased by a single act of wrong. I learned that vocalizing appreciation is culturally revolutionary. But more is needed for material revolution. These were powerful lessons which felt very liberating. They still feel liberating. And social justice analysis is about mapping our way towards liberation. Looking at the current status quo and figuring out where we can intervene and make it better. So I'm going to describe a few tools that we can use to create our map to liberation. One tool is based on a tension we often face when doing advocacy. This is the tension between radicalism and political feasibility. Now, radicalism is a charged word, but it means going to the root of the problem. So, for example, as we talk about gun violence, we're often talking about what will stop mass shootings. It's oftentimes in a reaction to mass shootings, at least in current years. A radical approach would see the problem not just in the guns themselves, but in why the gun is used, why the trigger is pulled. Desperation and masculinity are two common elements. Uh, We can see these common elements. There are actually answers to this. But where do our ideas of masculinity come from? Why Why do they sometimes tie into violence? Why is there so much desperation? And how can we change? How can we change this? The city of Richmond, California, cut its homicide rate by 75% in seven years by identifying the 50 people most likely to commit crimes, to commit violence, and then offering them a place in a program to change their lives, and they also received a stipend. This stipend is important because people need to know that their material needs are covered. In general, I can confidently say that a society which better takes care for its people will have less desperation and less violence. But such thinking is more focused on the root of the problem, solving the problem, than most legislators are. For legislation, whenever there is a mass shooting, people are amazed at the easy access that there is to weapons that can kill many people in a short period of time. We usually talk about the the less radical step not of ending the problem, but of mitigating harm. Even then, there are more or less effective ways to mitigate harm, and there is this challenge because while a deeper reform is more likely to change the situation, it is considered less politically feasible, which means less likely to pass within the current environment. And that word current environment is important because the environment can change. If guns were banned entirely, there would be no gun violence, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. A sort of compromise step is to ban high-capacity magazines. This reform is likely to mitigate harm and doesn't take away guns, and yet it's still not politically feasible. In the current environment, we're talking about preventing gun purchases from people who are on the no-fly list, which, by the way, is a very questionable list. Yusuf Islam, formerly known as Cat Stevens, was on the list. He wrote the song Peace Train, you might remember. 
Uh, I'm sure it's heavily biased with racial, religious, and ethnic profiling. And I don't actually know of a single mass shooter who has actually been on the list. The killer in Orlando at one point was watched by the FBI, but he was never put on the no-fly list, and he was, eventually they stopped watching him. I also feel it's important to mention uh, that he was actually a security guard who wanted to become a cop. The very roles that we are least likely to take guns from. But I'm outlining a spectrum of radicalism, which the spectrum is actually larger than I'm speaking here, but I'm doing this both to give a sense of the spectrum of approaches that we can take, uh, but also when we advocate, we have to ask the question, how deep of a change are we aiming for? Often the hope is to pass some politically feasible reform and then build on it, while the fear is that uh, once some small reform gets passed, people will stop fighting for more, and we will continuously accept reforms that never get to the root, perhaps have minimal effect, perhaps even in some senses exacerbate the problem. And I also want to add a critical question for us to consider. My own thinking has been in flux on this recently. Um, so consider along with me. <laughs> so Black Lives Matter has raised a lot of awareness about police killings, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. But it averages three people a day are killed by police in the U.S. That's a significant portion of who is being killed by guns and other weapons. And usually there are little to no consequences. Given all of this, what does it say if our talk about gun control does not extend to police? What does it say about the rights that police have relative to everyone else? What does it say to people who are targeted and seek our support? What does it say about our allyship? So these are questions to chew on. Um, and now I'm going to move on to another exciting, riveting tool for analysis, which is about our goals. Particularly, do we seek change from an official decision-making body within the system, such as a legislature? Uh, do we seek change in the culture at large? Or do we participate in direct action, which is meant to directly enforce change? Among UUs and ethical culturists, I see a tendency towards legislative change within the system, but I think that isn't necessarily the most effective approach. Uh, legal change tends to follow behind cultural change. Marriage equality is something that many people didn't think that they would see within their lifetimes. And I doubt marriage equality ever would have happened without Stonewall, Pride, Coming Out Day, and openly LGBTQ celebrities. All of this is cultural change. Also, referring back to the dilemma over how radical to be, while a goal that is more politically feasible is more likely to pass within the current environment, it's actually radicals who tend to lead the, the charge for cultural change. Radicals do things like camp outside in the middle of the city or interrupt elected officials so that all of us take notice. Or radicals stick to their views in Facebook debates, even though there are so many pressures to be agreeable, especially for the marginalized. As issues keep being raised, over time it creates sympathy and solidarity, which is really the same thing as cultural change. And cultural change, generally, I think, is a necessary precondition for legislative change. I also mentioned our goal can be direct action, which means that we're directly trying to enforce it, 
as opposed for, to looking for someone else. Um, civil, civil rights activists forced desegregation by having black and white people sit together at segregated lunch counters or drink from segregated fountains or use segregated restrooms. Julia Butterfly Hill lived in an ancient redwood tree to prevent logging. Rachel Corey was killed by a bulldozer when she resisted the demolition of Palestinian houses. To go back to the LGBTQ movement, Stonewall was a direct action resisting police harassment and abuse. Direct action feels very powerful, uh, but ironically its limitation is that everyday people are actually not as powerful as lawmakers. Uh, so a single direct action can force change, but it tends to be a limited scope. Nonetheless, direct actions make very, very powerful statements, and they tell memorable stories. This is true even if the media doesn't cover them. I think, honestly, direct action tends to be the most effective approach, and the most effective social change strategy will involve escalating direct actions, which either become bolder over time or involve more people, or they get closer to that root of the problem. So the final analytical tool, exciting, riveting analytical tool that I'll talk about, looks at violence and how it becomes normalized in society. This involves naming three types of violence, structural, direct, and cultural, and seeing how they interact with each other uh, to create kind of a, a common injustice, right, that we can see the violence within it. Structural violence refers to the way that the structure of society itself can violate people. For example, if you're working full-time or even more than full-time and still can't afford all the multiple expenses of food, housing, school, etc., Perhaps something happens and you can't afford good medical care, or the medical care drives you deep into debt. I know someone who had to have his leg amputated as a complication from diabetes. This wouldn't have happened if he had been approved for Medicaid and given proper access prior to losing his leg. That is violence when there is enough, but it's not accessible. Structural violence can mean that we know there are not enough jobs for everyone. We know there are not enough jobs for everyone. And yet still, we make it hard to survive without one. Structural violence can mean even if you do have a job, your fate is at the whims of your profit-maximizing employer who might cut your pay, keep your pay stagnant, downsize you, or give you a greater workload. For the majority of workers in the U.S., real wages have been stagnant or declining over the last 40 years. This is true even though both production and profits have risen. This means that the distribution of the pie has steadily grown more and more towards the wealthy, which, by my interpretation, is actually what is supposed to happen in our economic system. All of this creates an experience of poverty, which is an experience of suffering that could be avoided if, in this world of plenty, we were able to give to people according to their need. Poverty kills far more people than war or shootings or bombings or beatings. Poverty is also disproportionately afflicted on people of color, which makes sense because colonialism was about white leaders gaining access to wealth, and the racial disparity in wealth has never been repaired since then. Structural violence is reinforced by direct violence, which is what most people think of as violence. It is killings, beatings, etc., and it always accompanies structural violence. There is no slavery without the whip. There is no poverty without incarceration. 
There is no relegating women's role to the home without sexual harassment and assault. There is no worker exploitation without worker intimidation. Direct violence always must accompany structural violence because the privileged and oppressed in reality are equally human. All of us reside in human bodies and are subject more or less to the same potentials and limitations. Because of our commonalities, there must be institutions that elevate the position of one group and relegate another to know their place. The first police in the U.S. were the fugitive slave patrols who were invented to reinforce the position of black people within the structure of slavery. Now, racial disparities in arrests, incarcerations, convictions, and killings while in custody reflect how black people, people of color, and poor people still have a larger target on their backs. I know that this is controversial to talk about, and I mourn the killings and woundings of police that have happened over the last week. I also mourn the people killed by police. I think it's necessary for us to recognize suffering and how it spreads, that cloud that infects all of us. The blame for this ultimately goes to the violent structure. Three people a day are killed by police in the U.S. You might ask what they were doing. We know of people being killed like Freddie Gray or Natasha McKenna by how they are handled while incapacitated and in custody. We know of people being killed like Eric Garner and Alton Sterling, because of selling things in a way that's not approved by the state, because they are, in fact, being entrepreneurial. We know of people being killed like Tamir Rice and Sherman Evans, who was killed just last month in D.C. because of holding a BB gun. But even in a scenario like the cops in Dallas, or like the man who killed the cops in Dallas, ask yourself if that ever would have happened without the structural violence that is built into our society, without poverty, desperation, lack of opportunity, and everyday acts of abuse and intimidation. Structural violence and direct violence are further reinforced by cultural violence, which refers to our ideas, prejudices, and stories. U.S. culture has had a long history of portraying black people as savage, uncontrollable, and in need of guidance by civilized white men. The British justified their colonial empire with the idea of the white man's burden to teach civilization to the world. I think the U.S. inherited this sense of burden which justified slavery, but I also see a parallel between the white man's burden and our burden to spread democracy via wars that usually target people of color. It is the idea that the world needs a civilizing force which is led by white men, and the noble ambitions of these white men justify all varieties of violence. Really, it's about greed. But cultural violence isn't just limited to the powerful. We often don't realize when we're talking about civilization as a force for good that we're feeding into an old story which is really about white and western domination and the erasing of cultures and ideas that differ from a white and western perspective. Some people call this genocide, as there are many peoples and ways of life which no longer exist due to assimilation into white and western culture, assimilation which was forced on them. 
At home, we imagine dangerous wildness lurking in our streets, and we say police need to be able to kill people because their jobs are tough and dangerous. They need to keep that wildness at bay, and they need to keep the good people safe. This is what so many of our primetime TV shows are about. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, garbage collecting and farming and many other jobs are actually more dangerous than policing. And to a lot of people, more than we like to admit, the dangerous wildness is represented by black or brown skin, while good people are white. These three forms of violence, structural, direct, and cultural, combine to create the conditions where black lives are not valued as highly as white. The movement for black lives understands this analysis, an analysis which has been put together by many people confronting racism over history. And the purpose of this analysis is to find liberation, to understand the system and find liberation. The phrase itself, black lives matter, is part of that liberation. It is the assertion of a simple moral truth of the world as it should be. By analyzing this systemic violence, we can also uncover how it might be changed. Just this week in D.C., a coalition of Black Lives Matter activists occupied the legislative office for the Fraternal Order of Police. This office lobbies against measures that would hold officers accountable. A banner at the protest read, Divest from prisons and police, fund black futures. This is a message about how we can make a less violent world by changing our social priorities from watching and punishing people to supporting the things that they need to survive and thrive, like healthcare, education, access to food, etc. Remember that materially supporting people was also part of how Richmond, California was able to cut its homicide rate by 75% in seven years. The reason that police tend to target black people is because as a society, we don't care about black people. Because the people we care for, we do not police them as much as we support them. And black lives deserve as much care and support as white lives. We can be a more caring society. We must be a more caring society. You know, it keeps amazing me how there are all these people looking for jobs over here. And there are all these people with needs over here. Why can't we bring them together? If we changed our priorities, which are measured in the flow of our money, we really can better meet the needs of people. And that is social justice. So I've introduced a few tools for analysis. Thrown a lot at you. <laughs> hope, hope it stuck. <laughs> But in some ways, I think social justice really comes down to the internal struggle over whether it is worth it to try to make a difference. I want you to know that the world has changed many times, and it will continue to change. So when was the last time you gave a portion of your crops to your feudal lord? For me, the effort to change the world is challenging. This is hard stuff. But it's also extremely liberating. It is empowering. Working for social justice has made me feel human. It makes me love deeper. It makes me care more. It makes me feel connected and alive, like my life has meaning. 
So I want to close by naming a few changes that common people have come together to accomplish in the name of justice. These include the abolition of slavery, the 40-hour work week, voting rights, raising the minimum wage, immigrant rights to schooling and health care, LGBTQ rights to adoption and marriage, the reduction of environmental toxins, anti-apartheid, civil rights, the removal of many dictators, including Mubarak in Egypt, Milosevic in Serbia, Marcos in the Philippines, and many, many more. That was the M's. The deeper that we go with our analysis and the greater our awareness grows, the greater of a difference that we can make. The more we see our liberation as tied together, the more we see the possibility of a world that is much better than now and the more profound of a change we can make. When we act together, we have more than enough power to change the world. After all, we are the ones who make the world. It is not aliens. It's not our pets. I've seen it many times that when humanizing people claim power for a humanizing purpose, we make an environment that encourages us much more than it controls us, which could be a definition for what social justice looks like. This community, Wes, is an example of us working to create a more humanizing world. And look at what beautiful things we make. Social justice is a quest for ethical culture. Ethical culture is a quest for social justice. So, let's do some good work together. Thank you.